Oh, man. So we're in this series called Challenge Accepted. It's from the book of Matthew. And uh, the whole point is that Jesus says, can you trust me with your life? Can you give your life to me? Will you follow me? Will you see who, that, uh, who I really am? And uh, follow me with your life. So we're going to be in Matthew 17. If you have a Bible, please turn there. If you don't, would you raise your hand? We'll put one in your hand so that you can be uh, looking at it, reading it. We want you to be in God's Word because we believe that He speaks to us through His Word. God's, uh, we can read it, and then God's Spirit can uh, guide our thoughts into thinking it. So Matthew 17. We've been tracking with Jesus, and He's been doing miracles. So there's more than 20 of them recorded in the book of Matthew. And then he shares with them his insights, his teaching, his, really he's giving them God's word. And Jesus is on a mission. A few weeks ago, we read a passage, Pastor Derek was leading us, where Jesus said, who do people say that I am? And they said, well, some say you're this prophet, some say you're that important person. He says, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, well, you are the Christ, you are the Son of God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Peter, because flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. God revealed that to you. And then he begins to explain he's going to go to Jerusalem and uh, suffer and die so that sin could be forgiven. And uh, that is his mission. It's the reason Jesus came into the world was to die uh, uh, an atoning death so that you and I could be, our sin could be atoned for with God. And so on the way to Jerusalem, Jesus did take a, a, a day out to take uh, uh, Peter, James, and John. We went up a mountain. He was transfigured before them, and uh, two people from the past, Moses and Elijah, showed up and were talking with Jesus about what was going to be happening in Jerusalem. And uh, they're up there on the mountain. Jesus is just, I mean, he looks like a lightning bolt, and uh, he's just so bright with light. And uh, Peter, of course, got his foot in his mouth saying something without thinking, and God even spoke from heaven and said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Well, that was up on the mountain. You know, he left nine disciples who were generally not the brightest of the nine or of the 12. He kind of took the leaders with him. And so the other nine are down there in the valley below. And it's a different situation down there. I mean, Jesus is out of sight, though clearly not out of mind. And those nine disciples are trying to do some crowd control. And uh, there's a whole bunch of people that have showed up to want to see Jesus do a miracle and to hear what he has to say. And then the Jewish scribe showed up to fight, to argue with Jesus and to so they're taking it out on the disciples, and the disciples are having a tough time, an embarrassing time, and he's putting a squeeze on their faith. You know, it's sometimes during tough times that God distills our faith, and we realize how much faith we really have or don't have. And God intends to remind his people that, uh, you know, markers of genuine faith include loving and serving and praying and giving and sharing your faith and, and um, anticipating that God's got things under control and we just need to follow him every day. And during tough times, God helps us to discover or rediscover the core of genuine Christian faith. And sometimes we forget that when things are just going well and we're dealing with prosperity, so today in this passage in Matthew 17, we're starting verse 14, but a desperate father brings his, his son who's ha possessed by an evil spirit and he brings him to Jesus. This evil spirit is trying to destroy his son. And uh, so please turn to Matthew 17 with me. Do you know the birth of a son or a daughter is a grand occasion for celebration and hope? My oldest grandson's turning four years old tomorrow. But then in 2017, we had three more that were born in one year, and there's three more that are going to be born this year in, in our house. So, you know, uh, we, you know, we are, are really kind of uh, doing a lot and expanding. And because I say we, you know, like I've had very much to do with it. I mean, I, I cheer and I tell you and I pay. And other than that, you know, 
It seems to work for everybody. So, you know, you know, every parent wants better for their children than they had for themselves. They assume their child is going to avoid the mistakes that they had made and build on the benefits. And we dream for health and happiness and a good and godliness and the best and the very best. Even the worst fears can be dreamed away. What parent anticipates that evil is going to befall their child? I mean, who would think that evil would someday control the life of a beautiful newborn baby? What parents envision that sickness or sin, disease, depravity, accident, drug addiction, or even death is, is, is going to be the heartbreak that they're going to have because of their child? But there's plenty of them here in the room, and even a lot of the men up the hill are praying about those things, grieving over that. And here Jesus is up on the mountain having this, the greatest mountaintop experience of all time where God is visiting with him on the mountain like he did with Moses on Mount Sinai. And, and down in the valley, when he comes down, he runs headlong into the harsh realities of ordinary life here below. Matthew 17, 14 says, When he came to the crowd, a man came up to him and knelt before him and said, Lord, have mercy on my son. He has seizures and he suffers terribly. He often falls into a fire or into the water. And I brought him to your disciples so they could heal him, but they could not. Wow, this dad is desperate. I mean, Jesus has finally arrived back with the other nine disciples who've been struggling to hold things together. And out of desperation, this one dad has somehow managed to force himself to the front of the line for Jesus' attention. He is desperate. He yells out. He kneels before Jesus. He calls him Lord, which is a sign of respect. And he begs for help. He's throwing himself at Jesus' mercy and compassion. There's nowhere left to turn. See, public begging is not the first action even of a parent in need. I mean, it's more like a final act of desperation. The pride's gone. Your secrecy's been abandoned. Embarrassment doesn't matter. I mean, good manners are just too much work. He needs help, but there's nowhere else to go. And there's nobody else who can do anything about it. He's tried everything else. Jesus is his final hope. He explains the situation to Jesus, the problem with his son. Luke tells us this is an only child. This is a special boy to this dad, and there are no others, and the dad is losing him to evil. The son is afflicted with demon, he's demon possessed for reasons unexplained. An evil spirit has come, taken over the life of his son. Sin is now in control. His son is not his son. Things come out of his mouth that he knows, that's not my son speaking. I mean, this is more than evil in the sense of bad things happening. There's a demon with intellect and power and wickedness far beyond the father's ability to make any difference. I mean, dads are supposed to make things better. And there's nothing this father could do that would be good enough or strong enough to kick this demon out of his son. It's torn his heart out. His son is ravaged with evil, and he can do nothing to help. Now, we don't talk about evil spirits or demons much today. I mean, it's kind of considered primitive and unsophisticated to believe that demons exist. It sounds terribly uneducated, even though it doesn't make the demons any less real to not recognize them. It's ironic in America that we have a lot more people who believe in angels than in demons, even though they are kind of the good and evil counterparts to one another. The Bible presents them both as realities, as true. And even though demon activity is comparatively rare in the Bible, most of it seems to be centered around the person and the ministry of Jesus that they really wanted to get in his face and oppose him. But Ephesians 6 in your scripture explains, put on the whole armor of God 
that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, I don't think there's a demon around every corner or under every bush, but uh, you know, I, I'm going to shy away from those that give way too much credit to that kind of stuff and remove our human responsibility. But this evil spirit is causing violent seizures in this boy. And this story is actually recorded in the book of Matthew and in Mark and in Luke. This boy is convulsed. He's foaming at the mouth. He becomes rigid. He, he throws himself into a fire or into a, a body of water. I mean, apparently the father is on constant call because his son might be drowned or burned to death. And the condition is chronic, and it's progressive. It's getting worse. And Luke explains, a spirit seizes him, and suddenly he cries out. It convulses him. He foams at the mouth. It shatters him. It'll hardly leave him. It is destroying this boy and this family. And the dad concludes, I brought him to your disciples to heal him, but they can't. Now, the dad is desperate. The disciples are disabled. I mean, the dad's tried everything, went everything else. His last-ditch effort is to bring the boy to Jesus, except Jesus is off on a prayer retreat up the mountain, and he's unavailable. So he begs the disciples. I mean, the disciples try, but it doesn't work. And we have to read between the lines here to imagine kind of what happened. But I'm guessing that the father told uh, the disciples exactly what he told Jesus. I told him... Uh, I told our reader this morning when she left, I said, you should have read a little faster. Okay. <laughs> I liked it. Didn't, didn't you like it? I, mean, I love having the teenagers in here with us. It kind of gives us a little bit of energy. You know, we got to sit up and listen, you know, and, and uh, so I, I guess I, I got to slow down a little, but, you know, read faster next time. Anyway, I'm guessing this father told the disciples the same thing he told, uh, you know, the Jesus later, that They've, I mean, the disciples tried an exorcism, tried to remove the evil spirit, but it, I mean, they actually had been commissioned by Jesus to, and empowered to do this kind of thing, and they had had experience with it, and they'd been successful in the past. In Matthew, if you went back to chapter 10, verse 1, it says, Jesus called to his 12 disciples. He gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. And then in verse 7, he says, Proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Well, after one of their evangelistic crusades, the disciples come back to Jesus. They're ecstatic. They said, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. To which Jesus replied, this is in Luke 10. He said, Do not rejoice that the spirits are subject to you. Rejoice that your name is written in heaven. See, Jesus is saying it takes more power to get you out of sin and get you saved and get you right with God than it does to exercise a demon. It costs Jesus something to offer salvation to you and to me for free. We're going to celebrate around his table where we remember his broken body and his blood that was poured out as a sacrifice. But Jesus is saying it costs something. And you've got that power because of Jesus. But this time... Nothing happened. I mean, maybe they were surprised. They've done this before, and, but this time it doesn't work. Why didn't it work? I mean, they must have been sweating that Jesus left them in charge. Here comes a Jesus-sized problem. They're presenting to, it's to them, and they represent Jesus, and it doesn't work. Have, have you ever had somebody come to you with a seemingly impossible prayer request? I mean, I have. I had a family recently here in church say, would you join us 
We're praying for a guy named Victor. He lives in Russia, and he has suffered horribly for his convictions, and we have been praying with him and talking with him about what Jesus could do in his life for 25 years. And he has never asked Jesus to be his Savior and Lord and help him in his sufferings. I've had other people come with huge personal problems. I've prayed for them and with them and prayed after they're gone. And I, I know that God, sometimes God just answers prayers in a dramatic way, and other times nothing happens. And you go, it's a sad feeling. What, Lord, where are you? And it's sad because the person asking for my help assumed somehow I had a closer connection to God than they did or more influence than they thought the prayer would make a difference. And then it doesn't. I mean, I know the disciples, you know, we've been there. I begged your disciples to help, and they, they couldn't. So there, there's a point here for us, for every Christian, and that is go directly to Jesus. Take it directly to Jesus. There's too many desperate fathers and mothers that are going to the dead saints or to, to Mary or to pastors or other or Christians, other believers. Go directly to Jesus. I mean, the truth is saints can't cure you. Mary's wonderful, but she's not God. Pastors and priests are helpless to handle life's greatest difficulties. Just take it straight to Jesus. Because Jesus said that we're all too short on faith and all too full of our own sin to handle life's greatest conflicts with evil. So Jesus' response was, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? He's tired. He says, how long am I to bear with you? Bear, bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and the boy was healed instantly. I mean, that's why it's always best to point people to Jesus in need. When all others are too weak, when all others fail, when all others are helpless, you go to Jesus. He said, bring your son here. Now, we know that the devil is intent on your destruction. He is a faithful enemy, a persistent enemy. And a terrible thing happened as his father brought his son to Jesus. This part is left out of the story by Matthew, but it's recorded in the book of Mark. The journey couldn't have been more than a few yards. The boy must have been standing somewhere behind the father. Jesus says, bring him to me. He turns around to get him, and here's what it says in Mark. Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to him, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and arose. He arose. This demon knows he's done for. He knows he's up against the power of Jesus and that Jesus has the power to evict him and his time is short. So he trashes the boy one more time. He throws him to the ground in a convulsion. He has one last blow against this boy's already tortured life. And the Greek word used here is the same as used in a boxing or wrestling match where the opponent smashes or pins the loser to the ground. See, evil always seeks to do damage and deface. It takes every opportunity to hurt and to maim and to destroy. And even when evil is about to lose, it fights to the bitter end for a person's body and soul because evil hates good and good hates evil. See, sin at first might disguise itself as attractive. It starts slow. At the beginning, it rarely goes by names like addiction or adultery or death. But sin never lets go easily. Sin never surrenders quickly. It's always a fight to say, I'm going to let go of sin, and I'm going to hang on to the Savior. But Jesus takes charge here. He gives divine direction. He says, O faithless and twisted generation, you know, faithless is to be somebody who has a wrong view of God. That's what it means to be faithless. 
to answer the question, can I really trust God with my problems, with my hopes and dreams, with my life? Can I trust God? Can I give him my life? Faithless people would say no. Faithful people would say yes. Little faith people would say, well, sometimes. See, twisted, Jesus says, faithless and twisted. Twisted, it means it's been distorted. It's out of focus. It's not seeing clearly that God loves to work in situations where there's somebody who's a person of faith. So in the next moment, there's this clash between the powers, between good and evil, between heaven and hell, between Jesus and the demon. It says, Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out, and the boy was healed instantly. So there's kind of three changes in this miracle. The first is spiritually, Jesus rebukes the demon and kicks him out. And it's a power struggle and Jesus won. So what actually happened? I suppose it's kind of like a person who's a bad influence so they get kicked out of school or they get fired from a job or they get sent off to prison. I mean, the demon depicts, the Bible depicts demons like they're like angels, they're only bad. They're both spirits and they're invisible, but they have personalities, they have intellect, they have feelings, they have will. I mean, they're like a person. The point is that Jesus delivered this father's son from evil that was controlling him, and it was a permanent victory. And it got rid of the demon in his life, but he also needed a physical healing. So Jesus healed him spiritually and healed him physically. When there's a physical healing in the Bible, it talks about getting a cure. When it was a demonic uh, healing, it's called that the demon was cast out. So both the word cure and cast out are in this paragraph. The boy had both problems and Jesus healed both of them. And then in Luke 9.42 it says Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, he healed the boy, and then he gave him back to his father. So that's a relational healing. He gave him back. I mean, it's possible to be family members and live in the same house and be worlds apart from each other. To have a brokenness because of sin and miscommunication, and hurt. This dad got his son back. I mean, I know there's dads and lots of them up at camp, probably plenty of them right here in the room, who are praying for this kind of miracle in their own life with one of their children. In some ways, this is probably the best part of the miracle for the dad, that he could now be with his boy. They could talk to each other. They could listen to each other. They could have conversation and show love for one another without the horror of the problems they had been dealing with. I mean, it's just like Jesus to bring healing and to bring people together in the kind of relationships that God wants people to have. That's what he does for us when he went to the cross, which we're going to celebrate in just a few moments with Pastor Eric. Now, in Luke's version of this story, at this point, there's a verse that says, and all were astonished at the majesty of God. All were astonished at the majesty of God. No wonder. They had seen something supernatural and spectacular. And there's no explanation except it was God. God did a miracle. God had done something good and something great. Well, then Matthew, he's one of those nine disciples, you know, who was struggling he gives us the inside scoop of what happens with the disciples. In Matthew 17, 19, it says, Then the disciples came to Jesus privately, and they said to him, Why couldn't we cast it out? We were so embarrassed when we called on your power and nothing happened. He said, well, it's, he said to them, Because of your little faith. Because of your little faith. Truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed and you say to this mountain, Move from here to there, it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Why couldn't we do the miracle? Because your faith was so small. Mark is, when Mark is answering this question, Jesus says, 
This kind cannot be driven out by anything but by prayer. Or one version of Mark says, by prayer and fasting. Those are spiritual disciplines where somebody fasting is denying yourself food so you have more time to pray and to focus on God. And having a discipline of prayer where regularly you're meeting with God, preferably on a daily basis. Jesus says you have such little faith. Your faith is so small and so weak. You need to have something supernatural. But without prayer, you don't have this connection to God. I mean, I think this is a point of conviction because these disciples had had enough faith to do this kind of thing before. Had they let their faith drift? Had they gotten away from it? I mean, they're walking with Jesus every day. Had they just gotten too familiar with the work that God was doing and the, 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 the miracle and the mystery of Jesus? I mean, have they gotten to where the only prayers they do were public prayers? They didn't have a prayer life going. I mean, their faith must have been stronger had they let it lapse. What's going on that they had known Jesus? They had invited Jesus into their life. They had given their hearts to Jesus. They're walking with Jesus every day, for goodness sake. But now when they need it, their faith is just so weak because they're just kind of going along with the flow. They're resting on their prior accomplishments. It's kind of a warning to us. And keep your faith alive. Keep it fresh. Keep it daily. Keep it vibrant. Stay connected to Jesus. Well, this story ends in Matthew with a paragraph that at first you kind of leaves you scratching your head going, why is that here? Is it accidentally by the editor put in the wrong spot? But it says there, as they're gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. Jesus says this, and they didn't get it. Here they have just seen this huge miracle of a spirit being exercised out of a boy, the boy being healed and restored and returned to his father, and they're praising God, and Jesus says, hey, we're headed to Jerusalem for me to die and then be raised from the dead. And they don't get it, and they're afraid to ask that Jesus is talking about his future, and he's talking about the really big battle of sin and evil versus the goodness of God. And then there's a little paragraph that basically says Peter was called on the carpet because he was late for his taxes, and so was Jesus. And so Jesus told him a way to go fishing and provide for that to be paid. So here's Jesus fo focused on saving the world from sin and making it so people could have a way to be with God forever in heaven. But he also has to deal with the daily grind of living in this world, just like we do. And the disciples don't really understand what he's talking about when they've just seen this big miracle. And Jesus is saying there's something much bigger, much greater, much more important that we are trying to do. And that is to get to Jerusalem to suffer and die. And Jesus' miracle is awesome. He's restored a boy in his life and returned him to wholeness and wellness and back to his father. But that's small potatoes compared to what Jesus did on the cross. It's the cross that was really mattered. It's the cross where Jesus is going to meet sin and Satan head on and, he's going, and where human destiny is going to be decided. The cross is where Jesus is going to be broken and poured out. He would win the greatest spiritual battle that would ever be fought on the cross. Instead of dealing with the assaults of evil one person at a time, the cross was where Jesus, representing all of us, would die and therefore win I mean, the cross was the reason Jesus was born. He came to die. But they didn't understand that, at least not yet. On the other side of the cross, they would finally get it and become fully devoted followers of Christ. In fact, they would become what Jesus commanded them, disciple makers. 
So here's some of the lessons for us to take from this. There's no problem that's too big to bring to Jesus. Jesus can help when anyone else, everyone else cannot. We also see that evil does not give up quickly. And that Jesus wants to intervene in our lives spiritually and physically and relationally. But the main message is not the immediate crisis that you find yourself in or I find myself in. The main message is the cross of Jesus Christ. It's in the cross that he can offer us forgiveness, hope, redemption, relationship with God. Now, there's an interesting part of this dialogue between Jesus and the Father that Matthew leaves out that Mark put in. So I'm going to jump back into the story here. Mark 9, 21, Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And the father says, well, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything to help, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus says, if? In other words, he's casting doubt on Jesus. I'm not sure you can help. I've tried everything else. I've been disappointed over and over and over and over. If you could possibly help us. And Jesus goes, if you can? All things are possible for one who believes. And the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. You ever been there? You're not somebody of no faith, but you're not somebody of great faith either. This is the little faith. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And he's honest. He says, Jesus, I'm not sure, but I want to trust you. I want to reach out to you. And it's a first step. And Jesus honors this little faith in this man and heals his child. So I don't know about your battle with evil. We all have them. We all struggle, I can tell you. Increase your faith in Jesus and in his power and in his compassion. Jesus can help and he wants to. And come to Jesus and just be as honest as this dad that we all need help. And Jesus is the help. So let's pause and pray. Dear Jesus, Thank you that you came to help one person like this at a time. Thank you that you worked in this little family and you restored the son and the relationships and you brought them your peace and your love and your joy. But I also thank you that you had a greater mission and you accomplished that. You kept your, your eye on the, on the goal, on the prize of offering to every person who's ever lived your love, your forgiveness, a relationship with God. And you did that by being broken and having your blood poured out to cover our stain of sin. And so as we remember, as we commemorate that this morning, I pray that our hearts will be drawn to you in greater compassion and appreciation and our faith will grow. And we will know it's not an if, it's a since. It's a because, Jesus, you are the Lord that we can trust you and give you our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.